Good morning, Grace Chapel. Sarah and I recently went on a bike ride this past Monday. It was, from one perspective, a complete failure. Well, and then from another perspective, it was actually a remarkable success. So let me, let me tell you how it's all unfolded. So we loaded our bikes and drove up the Valley Forge. After about 30 minutes drive, we get, unload the bikes, we get there. You know, we first time there, so we're trying to find our bearings, trying to find out, okay, where do we need to go, where are the trails, all of that. And then as soon as Sarah hops on her bike and begins riding over to one of those trail maps, you hear this loud crunching noise all of a sudden coming from the bike. I had her hop off immediately and I saw the problem right away. Flat. The rear tire was flat already. Now Hudson had just changed this tire. He had just changed the tube. There's no reason it should be flat. We did everything to try to inflate it again and we just could not get any air into it. Something's got to be wrong with the rim or with the tire. So, well, even though we, were all, we drove all the way out there, so Sarah's like, you know what, let's go ahead, go ahead and take a brief ride. So I felt a little bad. I actually left Sarah sitting in the car and I went and rode for a few quick miles. But you know what, I was glad I did. Because as I was riding down, I saw it when we were driving there, before we parked, I saw this really cool looking old stone arched, kind of slightly arched uh, thing and it just had a little stop sign on it and it was inviting me in. It was probably, it didn't, no, no, no trespassing signs, so I was okay, but it was inviting me in and I, I just had to explore it. So I got on the bike, I rode down and started exploring it, and as I'm driving down this beautiful tree-lined gravel road, I, there's this road to the right, so I pull in, and as soon as I pull in, I'm met with probably one of the most remarkable trees I've ever seen. The tree was so large that its branches actually descended into the ground, had taken root, and were ascended back up into the air. I've never seen anything quite like it. It's a little embarrassing when I think about my response because I was just simply overwhelmed. I lacked the words. I, was, I kept saying remarkable over and over again because it simply was remarkable. So when we got back home, I looked up. It's actually called the Pauling Sycamore. It's never been tested because no one wants to run the risk of damaging the tree through the testing, but it's estimated to be around 260 to 285 years old. That means it's believed to have been standing there when George Washington and the Continental Army encamped at Valley Forge. Now coming across this remarkable tree was, it was just unexpected and it was awe-inspiring. It created within me a sense of wonder that actually has only grown the more I know about it. And I reflect back on it, that wonder grows. So while our bike trip together never really happened, it was kind of a failure, it was a success from another perspective. That moment of awe and wonder is irreplaceable. In that moment when I came upon that tree and was left lacking words to describe what I was experiencing, that moment was a moment of wonder. Brothers and sisters, this morning we desperately need more of those awe-inspiring, wonder-invoking moments in our lives, do we not? Those moments help us to enlarge our wonder of God. Our view of God is simply too small. See, a large view of God will be a source of comfort and hope for us. If we grasp God as our warrior shepherd, then we will know that we are protected and cared for by a great and good God. He is incomparable. 
And as an uncomparable God, he alone is powerful enough, mighty enough, wonderful enough to be the true source of comfort and hope we so desperately need. There is no one like our God. He is incomparable God of comfort. There is comfort and hope in his great power, his majesty, his glory, his strength, and his might. Now, if you remember from last week that we are to proclaim God as a warrior shepherd, we saw that in Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 11. Now, Isaiah expands upon that theme of God as a warrior shepherd in the rest of this chapter 40. In verses 12 to 26, which we're going to look at this morning, Isaiah basically talks about God as the mighty warrior. He is great. He is powerful. He is mighty. And next week, when we finish the chapter out, look at verses 27 to 31, Isaiah expands upon God as a good shepherd. He is good. He is loving. He is the covenant-keeping God. So, this morning, the chief thing that I want us to see, more importantly, I believe that the Lord wants us to see is this. He is incomparable. There is no one like our God. He is great and greatly to be praised. And because He is incomparable, He alone is the only true source of our comfort and hope. Now Isaiah displays this incomparable nature of God in two ways in verses 12 to 26. First, he shows us that God is the creator of all, the incomparable, majestic, mighty creator of all. And second, God is the King and Lord of all. Now we're going to skip around a bit, but I hope these two themes become clear to you this morning. That God is the creator and God is the King. Our God is incomparable. There is no one, nothing, there is no one like our God. Look to him this morning for your comfort and hope. Let's go to the passage of scripture and read Isaiah 40, beginning in verses 12 down to 26. God's word says this, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, The nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman crafts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished from an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. 
Who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Father, help us this morning to see that you are the incomparable God. There is no one like you. Help us to look up to see your wonder, your greatness, to see that you are the great and mighty God, that you are the warrior king. You are the shepherd king. You are the incomparable one. Who is like you? There is no one. Amen. So the, before we get into the two reasons why God is incomparable, I want to talk a bit about how he is incomparable. We're going to look at verses 18 to 20, and, but we're going to begin with verse 25. I'm going to skip around a little bit this morning. Verse 25 says, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Now this verse sums up our passage well. It's, it's as if the Lord is challenging his people. Go ahead, find another God who is comparable to me. To whom will you compare? Is there anyone else? Is there anything else? It's almost as if he is saying, go ahead and try me. See if you can find anyone, anyone, anything that compares to me, the Holy One. Trust me, you won't, because there is nothing. There is no one. For years, Hannah prayed for a child. Then when the Lord answered and gave her Samuel, she rejoiced. Her expression of rejoicing recognizes the incomparable nature of God. She says, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. See, Hannah understood the incomparable nature of our God. There is no one like him, no one beside him. There is no rock, no fortress, no stronghold, no security like our covenant-keeping God. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides Him. There is no rock like our God. We are wise to confess this incomparable nature of God. We are fools if we settle for less, but we do just that. We tend to settle for far too less. We really are no different than the people of Israel. Look at verses 18 to 20. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with Him? An idol, a craftsman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Israel had a covenant relationship with the one and only true God, and they traded it away and sought after other lesser gods. 
Later in Isaiah 44, 9-20, Isaiah recounts the absolute folly of idolatry. He says, an idol is made with human hands. Someone goes out, chops down a tree. For a third of that tree he takes and uses it for wood to start a fire to warm himself. Another part he takes to start a meal. And the third part he takes and fashions an idol out of it and falls down and worships it. Now we... Don't worship blocks of wood, but we do worship countless other things. See, here's the root deception of all idolatry. We make idols out of good things. Often they are even gifts of God. Our sinful hearts take good things and turn them into God things. Good things into God things. Calvin famously said that our hearts are idol factories. And that image is a good one of our hearts constantly churning out idol after idol after idol. See, we become idol-making people because we fail to behold the incomparable glory and greatness of our God. And we settle for less. I'm often reminded of a well-known C.S. Lewis quote. This is what he says. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What Lewis is saying is that our desires are too weak. We are half-hearted creatures. Infinite joy is offered to us by the infinite God. And we're content making mud pies in a slum. We settle for less. Yes, they are good things, but they are not great things. Only our God is great. We are far too easily pleased. We settle for far too less. Far too often. Our incomparable Lord is so much more. To whom then will you compare me? Says the Holy One. So let's dig deeper to see two reasons why our God is incomparable. First, God is incomparable because He is the Creator of all. Look at verses 12 to 14. Who has measured the water in the hollows of His hand? And marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the paths of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Here in these verses, Isaiah uses two images to help us to see the incomparable creator and sustainer, our God. The first image is that of a craftsman, the one who creates. He measures water in the hollow of his hands. He marks off the heavens. He encloses the dust of the earth with a measure. He weighs out the mountains and hills in a balance from the very beginning of time. God planned and purposed this seedling to fall into the ground near Valley Forge some 300 years ago so that it would grow up to become a remarkable tree so that this past Monday I would ride by it 
and be left in wonder. That is the greatness of our God. Second, this image is of a teacher or a counselor. Teachers, they teach, they instruct. They're a source of wisdom and knowledge, a source of comfort. Is there anyone greater than our Lord? Is there any counselor wiser than Him? He has created us. He knows us intimately. In fact, He knows us better than we know ourselves. He searches us and knows us. And there is nowhere we can flee from His presence. He is the one who formed us. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. So our hearts cry out with the psalmist, Wonderful are your works. Is there anyone greater than our God? Is anyone able to measure the Spirit of the Lord? But yet, how often do we put God in a box in our own minds? How often do we make such little thoughts of God? This is not a problem with God. This is a problem with our own sinful hearts and small minds. God, our God, is immeasurable, incomparable. To whom then will you compare me? says the Holy One. Great is our Creator, Warrior God, our incomparable God of comfort. Second, our God is incomparable because He is the King and Lord of all. We see this as in verses 15 to 17. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon will not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as nothing less than emptiness. As creator, he stands as king over all kings and lord over all lords. The nations are nothing more to him than a drop in a bucket. Dust on the scales find us. The most powerful nations are not even enough to be used as fuel to start a fire. All the nations are nothing before him. Less than nothing. Emptiness. Now here's the interesting thing. We Americans really don't grasp this, do we? Far too many American Christians have an idolatrous view of America. Depending on who is in office, we see them as either a savior or antichrist. Either way, we give them too much power. But what does God's word say about our great nation? It says America, like every other nation, is nothing but an insignificant drop in a bucket, a speck of dust in the scales of history. Now America, as great and powerful as she is, is accounted as nothing by God. Why do the nations rage? Why in the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven, Psalm 2 says, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the one enthroned in heaven, says, as he looks down upon the nations, he laughs. He holds them in derision. As great as we think we are, 
We are nothing to the Lord. Isaiah continues to exalt the Lord as king in verses 21 to 23. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, and when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. The Lord, our God, is the one who reigns. He is the one who sits above the earth. He has stretched out the heavens. He brings rulers to nothing. Like the flowers of the field that we heard about last week, even the grass, the greatest rulers are scarcely planted, scarcely sown, scarcely taking root. And all the Lord does is blow on them and they cease to exist. Now we, as we live today, are living in the in-between. This time where the nations still rage, where rulers still set themselves up against the true King of kings and Lord of lords. But a time is coming, brothers and sisters, where Jesus will return and topple all earthly kingdoms, where he'll be enthroned as the one and only warrior king. This time is foretold of us in Revelation 19. One of the most remarkable passages, hopeful passages of Scripture. John says this, Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe... And on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is our God. Jesus is the rider on the white horse. Jesus is the warrior king who fights for his people. Jesus is faithful and true. Jesus judges and makes war. Jesus' eyes are aflame like fire. Jesus is crowned in royalty. Jesus' splendid kingly robe is dipped in blood. Jesus is the word of God, and by the very word of Jesus' mouth, he will strike down the nations. Why? Because they are nothing to him. Jesus will rule. He will tread them in the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. The nations that have rebelled against him will one day be completely suppressed and eradicated, crushed. And in righteousness, the nations will be judged by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Brothers and sisters, this is our incomparable God. This is Jesus, our God of comfort. To whom then 
Will you compare me, says the Holy One. Now as we wrap up this morning, I want to ask this question. How are we to respond to this uncomparable God? How are we to live in light of his greatness? See, if our view of God is little and insignificant, then the comfort and hope we derive from him will also be small and insignificant. But if we truly grasp the greatness and incomparableness of our Lord, a God of comfort and hope will also be great and incomparable. It will be exponentially larger because our God is great and greatly to be praised. What we need to do this morning is recover a sense of wonder. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, We are perishing, he says, for want of wonder, not for want of wonders. So what does he mean by that? He says we are, basically we are dying because we no longer wonder. We have lost a sense of awe and the joy that flows out of it. We are not perishing from a want of wonders. There are plenty of things in the world to invoke that wonder. What he says is I believe we are perishing because our spiritual eyes have been closed to that wonder, to that greatness, to that might, to that splendor, and to the glory of our God. So this morning, let me make a twofold suggestion to help us recover a sense of wonder. First, go outside. Go outside. Go outside tonight and watch some stars. Really, Pastor? You want me to go and watch some stars? Take a look back at verse 26. It says this, Lift up your eyes. On high and sea. Who created these? Now it's especially at times like this where we're supposedly sequestered into our houses, we need to get outside and behold the greatness and glory of our God, even if it's in your backyard. Do you want to see the glory of the Lord? David in Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Brothers and sisters, look up. Go outside and consider the fields, the flowers, the sky, the clouds, the beauty that our God has made. Let me challenge you to go out this afternoon and look around. The God who made all of this. Consider the beauty and wonder of his creativity. Find the largest tree in your neighborhood. Pause there. Think about how long it has been there. Consider what it has seen over the years. Reflect upon that it started as a small seed. Or go outside tonight. Look up. Try and count the stars. Seriously. Try to count them. Have you ever actually tried, have you ever slowed down enough to actually try and count the stars? If it's too cloudy tonight or too cold, a very, very second option is this. Go over to YouTube. Check out Hubble Space Telescope's YouTube page. The video footage is remarkable, awe-inspiring. It should invoke wonder as you see stars from far distant galaxies Remember this, our God has created and named each and every one of them. To whom then will you compare me, says the Holy One. Here's my second suggestion. Read 
Ezekiel chapter 1 today. And don't try to figure it out. Don't try to overanalyze everything. Just sit before Holy Scripture and be amazed. This is the prophet doing his best with the words he has to describe the glory and greatness of our God. It's supposed to blow our minds. I don't think we're supposed to understand it as much as we're simply to wonder at it. Allow yourselves that moment of wonder as you sit before God's holy word. And remember the question that God has asked us from the beginning. To whom then will you compare me, says the Holy One. Brothers and sisters, our God is the incomparable God of comfort. Slow down. Take the time to wonder at Him. Let us pray. Praise the Lord. We will give thanks to the Lord with our whole hearts and the company of the upright and the congregation. Great are your works, O Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is your work, and your righteousness endures forever. O Lord, you have caused wondrous works to be remembered. You, O Lord, are gracious and merciful. You provide food for those who fear him. You remember your covenant forever. You have shown your people the power of your works. Father, show us that power. In giving them the inheritance of the nations, show us your rule of king of all kings and lord of all lords. Allow the work of your hands for us to see it as faithful and just. All your laws are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. And not only that, our Lord, you in sending your sons has sent redemption to your people. You have commanded that your covenant shall last forever. That you will be our God. That we will be your people. As Psalm 111 declares, holy and awesome is your name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. O oh Lord, your praise endures forever. Our great God, your praise endures forever. Help us to sit at the feet of you, to behold the wonder of your works, to behold the wonder of your word, and to give glory and say, Who is like our God? Our Father, you, O oh God, are the incomparable one. Let us submit and bow down before you. And it's in the name of the warrior king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the great mighty shepherd, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.